Welcome to episode 80 of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about democracies. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as democracies, celebrities, hate speech, Trump derangement syndrome, or Edward Snowden comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean.com. The video versions of the podcast are available on YouTube, bitshoot.com, and brighton.com. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook and Twitter advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Is it just me or is anyone else bothered when you hear politicians and talking heads refer to America as a democracy? The D word is thrown around so often by so many that I don't think many people bat an eye when they hear it. Prominent national Democrats and Democratic nominees for president provide much fodder for this topic as they feign concern about American democracy and its protection. I just heard an ad on the radio for Tom Steyer's campaign, whom most of you likely never heard of. He's another dastardly billionaire like Michael Bloomberg who is pursuing the Dems' presidential nomination through ad buys. This particular ad mentions protecting our democracy, as well as referencing his support for a national referendum. More on that later. Elizabeth Warren regularly issues dire warnings about our democracy hanging in the balance and our democracy being in trouble. Oh, unless we forget the Russians, the scary Russians attacked our democracy and helped elect Trump. Former communist and current socialist Bernie Sanders loves to talk about saving our democracy. He wants to revitalize American democracy with campaign finance reform. He wants to get billionaires and corporations out of the way of democracy. He wants to stop our democracy from turning into a corrupt oligarchy and save it from billionaires. I wonder if that includes Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg. Joe Biden loves talking about democracy. It needs to be preserved. Speaking about Trump, he said, quote, To preserve our constitution, our democracy, our basic integrity, he should be impeached, end quote. Joe also does not want our democracy to be undermined by foreign influences. His campaign website states, quote, We've got to make sure our democracy includes everyone, end quote. Speaker of the House, the despicable one, Nancy Pelosi, explained the impeachment of Trump, saying we must, quote, investigate and litigate to protect our democracy, end quote. She also said, quote, if the president has done what has been alleged, then he is stepping into a dangerous minefield with serious repercussions for his administration and our democracy, end quote. This is not just limited to national Democrats. I'm only picking on them because they're currently very prominent, making speeches, bashing Trump, white people in America while looking for votes. But I distinctly remember the Bush administration invoking the D word early and often to justify the never-ending wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, we must make fill-in-the-blank Middle Eastern country safe for democracy, or some variation of that phrase. My question was always, why? Have these countries ever been a democracy? Because that question is never asked, we never get an answer. Back to Bush, when you look back in history, 
He was just recycling President Woodrow Wilson's early 20th century appeal to the make the world safe for democracy as justification for entry into World War I. And then Franklin Roosevelt argued that America must be the great arsenal of democracy, and of course rushed to England's aid in World War II. 18th century historian Alexander Fraser Teitler argued that, quote, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship, end quote. British writer G.K. Chesterton put it this way, quote, You can never have a revolution in order to establish a democracy. You must have a democracy in order to have a revolution, end quote. There's one problem with all this D-word rhetoric. The United States of America is not one. Neither the Declaration of Independence nor the Constitution even contain the word democracy, but the latter mandates that, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government. You've likely heard the famous story about Ben Franklin. He was asked by a Mrs. Powell um, of Philadelphia as he left the Constitutional Convention. She reportedly said, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin responded, a republic if you can keep it. So what is the United States? It's a constitutional republic, which means we democratically elect, there's that word again, we democratically elect representatives who then propose legislation, make decisions, and vote on our behalf. It's a layer of protection against mob rule, which is exactly what democracies are. Republics, on the other hand, are ruled by laws. In addition to being ruled by laws, republics serve as protection for the individual from the majority or the mob. Do you really want to permit 51% of the population to be allowed to rape and pillage the other 49? Randall Holcomb, author of Liberty in Peril, Democracy and Power in American History, put it this way, quote, The founders wanted those in charge of government's operations to be selected by a democratic process. They also wanted to insulate those who ran the government from direct influence by its citizens because by insulating the political decision makers from direct accountability to citizens, the government would be in better position to adhere to its constitutionally mandated limits. End quote. The word republic comes from the Latin res publica, which means simply the public things, or more simply the laws. Democracy, on the other hand, is derived from the Greek word demos and kraton, which translates to the people to rule. Democracy, therefore, has always been synonymous with majority rule. Oh, and here's an interesting related historical fact that I came across during the research for this episode. The War Department's 1928 training manual, which was intended for use in citizenship training, defined democracy as, quote, a government of the masses, authority derived through mass meeting or other form of direct expression results in mobocracy. Attitude towards property is communistic, negating property rights. Attitude of the law is that the will of the majority shall regulate, whether it be based upon deliberation or governed by passion, prejudice, and impulse without restraint or regard to consequences. Results in demagogism, license, agitation, discontent, and anarchy." End quote. Writing for the newamerican.com, John McManus explained the founders, quote, 
had studied the history of both the Greek democracies and the Roman Republic. They had a clear understanding of the relative freedom and stability that had characterized the latter, and of the strife and turmoil quickly followed by despotism that had characterized the former. In drafting the Constitution, they created a government of law and not of men, a republic and not a democracy, end quote. He continues, quote, The Founding Fathers supported the view that, in the words of the Declaration of Independence, men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. They recognize that such rights should not be violated by unrestrained majority any more than they should be violated by an unrestrained king or monarch. So, think of it this way. In a republic, murder and rape are crimes. Always is, always will be. However, in a democracy, the majority can decide these things are no longer crimes. Did the fact that the majority of people in the 18th century thought slavery was okay make it right? Does the fact that a majority of people once thought abortion was acceptable magically make the practice not morally repulsive? Does it magically make it not the ending of a human life? Never forget those examples when you hear the strengthening a democracy argument. You can rile up the majority, those who are headline readers, uninformed, unengaged. You can get them to vote for just about anything. Think about the push for socialized medicine, Obamacare, Medicaid for all. Or think about climate change. Misinformation, ignorance, and propaganda can move the masses. That's why the founders avoided democracy like the plague. In 1961, John Birch Society founder Robert Welch explained, quote, Man has certain unalienable rights which do not derive from government at all, and those rights cannot be abrogated by the vote of a majority any more than they can by the decree of a conqueror. The idea that the vote of a people, no matter how nearly unanimous, makes or creates or determines what is right or just becomes an absurd and unacceptable as the idea that right and justice are simply whatever a king says they are. End quote. So in other words, what God giveth, man cannot take away, even if the majority vote to do so. Which is why I cannot get over the fact that aborting babies is in the least bit debatable. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? These babies can't even get to the liberty part. So yes, we do elect our representatives in a democratic method. However, the distinction is never made by our politicians and talking heads, and in my mind it just lends to the deterioration of constitutional literacy of the populace. Hell, you've seen the man on the street interviews where people don't know the name of the vice president or can't name two of the ten amendments that comprise the Bill of Rights? Most Americans can't even pass a citizenship test that legal immigrants have to take, and you want to enable a majority of them to vote and determine the future of the country? Shit, the level of constitutional ignorance could not have been demonstrated better than following the House vote to impeach Trump. It seemed like half of the Democratic voters thought he had been removed from office. As one of my favorite commentators, Peter Schiff, once said when reflecting on Democrats' calls for more democracy, when he posed the question, why would you want more democracy in a republic? His response was, why in a country of morons would you want that? So let's reflect on why the Founding Fathers set up our system the way they did. The primary reason was due to the fact that democracies have a 100% failure rate. A word that the founders often used to describe democracies was mobocracies. Democracies always devolve into dictatorships of the majority or a tyranny of the majority. The majority with less will always take from the minority with more, rich versus poor. Why do you think the National Democrats are constantly invoking envy and jealousy with their cries for the rich versus the poor, 
or the billionaire class, as Bernie Sanders repeatedly yells from the stump. The reason, of course, is because there's more non-billionaire voters and vice versa. So what did some of the Founding Fathers have to say specifically about democracies? Well, how about John Adams? He said, quote, Remember, democracies never last long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never democracy yet that did not commit suicide, end quote. What about Alexander Hamilton? He said, quote, We are a Republican government. Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. And he said, quote, It has been observed that a pure democracy, if it were practicable, would be the most perfect government. Experience has proved that no position is more false than this. The ancient democracies in which the people themselves deliberated never possessed one good feature of government. Their very character was tyranny, their figure deformity, end quote. In Federalist Number 10, James Madison wrote, quote, Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they are violent in their deaths, end quote. Fisher Ames wrote that the framers of the Constitution, quote, intended our government should be a republic which differs more widely from a democracy than a democracy from despotism, end quote. He also termed democracy, quote, a government by passions of the multitude, or no less correctly, according to the vices and ambitions of their leaders. And he also said, quote, democracy in its best state is but the politics of bedlam. While kept chained, its thoughts are frantic. But when it breaks loose, it kills the keeper, fires the buildings, and perishes, end quote. Still not convinced? Here's some further proof that the United States is not a democracy. Think about all the non-democratic features of the Constitution. You've got a limited central government power. They installed checks and balances. They diffused power between the three branches of the government and the states. They created the Electoral College, the filibuster, the veto, the veto override. The Senate itself is anti-democracy. What about the judicial branch? Clearly, the founders not only hated democracies, they went way overboard to ensure that the United States would not become one. Here's another quote from Randall Holcomb's book. Quote, the role of government, as American founders saw it, was to protect the rights of individuals, and the biggest threat to individual liberty was the government itself. So they designed a government with constitutionally limited powers, constrained to carry out those activities specifically allowed by the Constitution. So basically his thesis is more democracy equals less individual liberty. And I want you to digest that conclusion. Really think about it. The more democracy there is, the less there is individual liberty. The principle of democracy suggests that collective decisions are made according to the will of the majority. The greater the allowable scope of democracy in government, the greater the threat to liberty. The shift away from republic to democracy has been progressive and liberals' wet dreams for more than a century. It really gained steam when, as mentioned earlier, Presidents Wilson and Roosevelt invoked democracy as a reason to join the First and Second World Wars, and it's been invoked ever since. The shift away from founding principles towards more democracy can easily be traced back in history. So think about the Civil War and how that squashed the possibility of state secession, which was or is the ultimate liberty card for a state to play if they feel they are being bullied or undermined by the majority of the other states. Well, what about the federal regulatory state? 
Our liberty to take drugs to possibly save our lives that have not been blessed by the FDA is gone. What about the cars we drive, the businesses we run, the food we consume, the light bulbs we can buy, the minimum wage we can be paid, and thousands of other things are regulated by the federal government and serve to directly dilute our liberty. In episode number 64, I discussed the federal income tax in the 16th Amendment. Can you think of a more liberty-depriving mechanism than this? Just look at your pay stub and look at your federal withholding line item. More income to the feds means more money to throw at more liberty-limiting, unconstitutional programs. What about the 17th Amendment, which ended the process by which U.S. Senators were selected? Did you know that the Constitution dictates that Senators are to be appointed by their state legislatures? The progressives couldn't allow such an undemocratic process to stand. They want democracy. Think about the Great Society and what it represents. I mean, it's like the ultimate triumph of democracy. Because for the first time, a major expansion in the scope of the government has been based on the demands of the electorate. What was it that Alexander Fraser Teitler said that I quoted earlier? A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. Well, that's what the Great Society is all about. Current efforts by the Democratic Party to further limit our individual liberty and move us closer to a democracy by tearing down any and all vestiges of the Republican form of government that the Founding Fathers established include the National Popular Vote Movement, the elimination of the Electoral College, see episode 34 about that, the lowering of the voting age, and a movement towards national referendums. Why would the left advocate for such things? Well, because they believe they are better at whipping up the mob to vote for them. They are better at dividing and conquering the electorate along racial lines, wealth lines, gender identity lines, sexual preference lines, immigration status lines, welfare recipients versus taxpayers, abortion advocates against pro-lifers. The National Democrats' entire election strategy relies on cobbling together enough perceived aggrieved groups, the mob, to bully everyone else. And the only way to get there is through more democracy. So the next time you hear someone talk and the words United States and democracy are used in the same sentence, what should you say? The United States is not a democracy. And then, of course, send them the link to this episode and tell them to listen. If you are looking for an easy-to-read reference guide to have on your desk or bookshelf that covers many topics tackled here at the Truth Quest podcast, grab a copy of my book, Critical Thinking, that's spelled with a P like Paul. The subtitle is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking and Common Sense in Politics and Public Policy. In it, I tackle dozens of public policy issues from abortion to American exceptionalism to the Federal Reserve, climate change, education reform, and gun control. It's available at Amazon and anywhere books are sold. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean for more information. And as always, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.